Welcome to Essential Salt, a podcast that brings you stories reported on by students at the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies. This series is produced by Maine Public in partnership with Salt. I'm your host, Lucy Suchak. In each episode of Essential Salt, we'll bring you stories that go beyond the headlines to capture something true, something unexpected, something essential about the state of Maine and the people who live here. Let's get started. Episode 1. Episode 1 will be a little bit different than all our future episodes. This one will be a virtual buffet. You'll hear about a giant problem in the town of Lubeck, a man's dogged pursuit of buried treasure, and a student finding his way with a little help in Sullivan, Maine. The episode will give you a taste of the breadth and quality of the stories you'll hear over the whole series. The essential of essential salt, as it were. Our first story explores the memories of the townspeople of Lubeck, Maine. In 2004, SALT student Molly Menchel recorded the recollections of the folks there who woke up one day to an unpleasant surprise. A giant dead whale had washed up on their shore. The story about the whale. The story about the whale, see. I understand it's a fish story and all this stuff. It is a big fish. But what happened years ago here in Lubeck, Maine? There was a whale got tangled up in the fisherman's lines way off, somewhere off a quarter head. You're way out to sea then, see. And it drifted in the shore. It just couldn't swim. You know, the tide carried it in, and it landed on the beach over here in Lubeck. Not too far from here, see. I saw it. I was down there. It was big. I couldn't tell you how long or... The whale was roughly 55 to 66. 56 and a half feet long. A 70-foot animal. That's almost the size of an 18-wheel truck. To me, it was huge. It was huge. It was huge. It was laying down, it would be as high as this ceiling. It was the largest animal I ever saw. No wonder in the Holy Bible it says, Jonah went into the belly of the whale. There was plenty of room there. That mouth was a big one. It was laying there right on top of the beach. And it was laying on its side. I remember it was blackish, grayish color. He wasn't gray anymore. He wasn't grayish, blackish. It was mostly it was black, and black and white. He was white, or whitish, grayish. And there was a lot of wounds on it, old scars. What it looked like was a vicious animal to me. I mean, it was a monster. But I wasn't frightened because it was dead. His mouth happened to be open. His mouth happened to be open. It was a dead fish, but his mouth happened to be open. It might have been uh, middle of August or so. Yeah, August, September, yeah, I can't. Sure, yeah. Evidently, it washed up in the night, and someone spotted it after daylight laying there on the beach. That was uh, early in the morning. The word had started to spread that this whale had washed ashore, and people started coming in. I went down by myself, but there were plenty of people around. Oh, the first day when it washed up, I went down. Yeah, we took the kids down to see it. The little kids were running up to it, and touching it. Climbing up on top of the whale, standing on it, and get the pictures taken. Sold hot dogs or something. Made a little money. (laughs) (laughs) I think people in a small town handle death in a different way. They have to deal with it a lot more often. Everybody knows everybody, so when someone dies, the whole town grieves. 
I actually went down there. It was coming on to sunset, and I sat on the beach and smoked a cigarette and bawled my eyes out. <laughs> yeah, that's what I done. And I, I never went back down. And we lived probably a thousand feet from the beach. The mystery in the whole thing is how we got there. Nobody knows if it died off in the bay and floated ashore, or whether it grounded itself out and died on the beach, or whether it just got confused. Nobody knows. It washed up on the beach. He got snarled up, could have been. I guess that's what happened to him, he drowned. get clear. You know, this is where it wanted to be. They called the Coast Guard to see if they could tow it back offshore and let it go some other town. But they wouldn't do it. Because it had already been a couple other places, and that's what they'd done. They towed it out, and Lubeck finally wound up with it. There was no boats big enough. And depending upon the way the wind was blowing, when the current was running, uh, some things were almost impossible to get rid of. I mean, this thing laid on the beach for days while the town was trying to determine whether they, how they were going to get rid of it. And it sat there, just passing the buck, because government didn't know what to do. They were arguing. One branch of government was too big to move. You couldn't move it. You couldn't do anything. We're a very poor town. We're the poorest county in the state of Maine, and that we would be the ones having to put the bill. In a small town, Lubeck, it was big doings. All the people in the town, in the town office, and the whole nine yards were all disturbed because. Like any dead body, it began to smell, you know, it stinked the town. A lot of people were saying, we got to move out of here on account of the odor from this whale, see? You could smell it. Low tide smells around here anyways, but this reeked of death. Rotten meat, sat in the sun for a month. You just take the cover off the can, stick your head in there, and that's just about what it smelled like. It was an oily, greasy smell. It was right in your nose. Oh, it smelled like rotten Rotten meat. fish and oil. It older. They couldn't stand yeah. it. You know, when the wind was blowing that direction right on the you town. You could smell it from Everybody. miles away. As far away as Eastport, Maine, they could smell it. Oh, I touched it. Probably felt the same as what it did almost when it was alive. Cold. They're cold-blooded. And it did have a funny feeling. The texture of the animal was... A great big smooth piece of rubber. I touched it with one finger, and I had to use less oil to get the stench really hard to get off your hands. I put hand cleaner on my hands. I put straight gasoline. You have to wind up bleaching it off your hands, and that's what I wound up doing. And finally they decided something had to be done about it. It would come to the point where no matter what it cost, it had to go. They knew <laughs> yeah, something had to be done. It had to be done. And they did done. something. One thing led to another, so they called Ramsell, a man named Ramsell. I was notified by the town of Lubeck. They contacted me to come down and dig a hole with that excavator. It was kind of a hazy, overcast day, and the sun didn't shine. I think there was like a crowd of 15 or 20 people actually showed up. There were a lot of people, maybe 100. Hundreds of people. Word spread fast. Everybody in town was there. But I just wondered where are they all going, you know. So I went too. So we dug a hole as close as we could. And before I got the hole dug, he accidentally slid on his own and went into the hole. Sort of graceful. I mean, it was so big, it just took its time. Just sort of the side caved in a little bit. He rolled in, he slipped in and rolled up, belly up. When they finally rolled it into the hole, you know, everybody sort of quieted down. And they were kind of respectful. 
They're kind of sad to see it go. Oh, I don't know how to explain it. Something that, that you never think of, dying. You always hear stories that a, a whale is a passed on fisherman's soul. Made me think how small I was. Yeah. There's a lot of people that think, oh, I'm so big. I'm so great. No matter how powerful they are, something will happen in life that will cause people to say, how small am I anyway? We're both mammals who have reached the pinnacle of, of our place, and uh, they, they just seem to be close to us. I feel close to whales. And we buried it six feet over the top of it. Dug up gravel and stuff and covered it all over. And I've dug grave, you know, for humans here in Colorado also. It just seemed different to bury something with no box. <laughs> just putting raw earth right back onto his body. You picture him as being immortal, like a free soul, free will out there. You, you just don't see him dying. It was sad. It was very sad. And it took about two and a half hours, three hours to dig the hole and then fill it back in. And by noon time, it was all finished. I think I got like $300 barrier thing. And then the town of Favor, actually. Maybe the whale, too. How do we know? It was just a day's work for me to, to help bury a whale. I mean, it was an oddity that to bury a whale. just something weird that it happened and something unforetold. And if you never did see it, you couldn't understand it, you know what I mean? And as far as I know, it's still there. He's still laying there. That's about all I can tell you about the whale. I haven't been down there since. Maybe I'll go down and take a stroll over. <laughs> That's the way things went. And uh, this is from Mars Island of Ruback, Maine. Just another fish story. The title of that piece was Just Another Fish Story. And it won Molly a Best New Artist Award at the 2005 Third Coast Festival. Kind of like the Emmy Awards, but for radio. This next archive story is one of buried treasure and a man's passion to find it. Topaz, ruby, olive, sapphire, puce, amber. That's the rainbow, according to Bram Hepburn, a resident of Elliott, Maine, who calls himself the Down East Digger. When he was interviewed by Emily Sapienza in 2005, Bram was already known as the local expert on 19th century trash. But not just any trash. In this story, find out how Bram uses centuries-old clues to find a rainbow of treasure in antique glass bottles. Here's Emily. Bram Hepburn is standing in the woods right off the highway. He just pulled a U-turn and parked his van in the breakdown lane. His piercing blue eyes scan the woods around him. Bram's eyes see back in time. He kind of guessed that there were farmhouses up on the top of the hill. It's just set up with that big old 200-year-old tree there. You know, you know that this wasn't plowed, plowed over 50 years ago. It wasn't an open field that that tree's been sitting there for 200 years. So if there's an old bucket beside it, there's a good chance that they were dumping their trash down in this ravine ever since then. And it looks like they dumped their trash. That's right. He's looking for where they dumped their trash. Because mixed in with the rusted wagon wheels, old buckets, and rotting leather saddles, there are fragile little jewels. Bram Hepburn is digging for glass bottles. 
you're brushing aside dirt and you hit like deep cobalt blue or one of these greens or, or dark amber then then your heart, heart races because you just know you you know if the bottle comes out whole that you're uh, you're dealing with a just a beautiful great piece of glass that is Bram's idea of a great dig not every dig goes so well these are old tin cans and uh, barrel tines and it's possible to end an entire day of bottle digging totally empty-handed. This morning, he's heading out of the woods with two bottles. The glycothymoline bottle and Dr. Tuttle's elixir from Boston, Mass. He grabs his clam rake and crosses back across the highway to continue on his hunt. Oh, here come the boys. At the Pontluck Bottle Shop in York, Maine, Every conceivable surface is covered with empty bottles. There are medicine bottles, elixir bottles, and whiskey bottles. There are bottles for products that don't exist anymore, like stomach bitters, hair tonics, and system renovators. Hey, bottles are back. It's a bottle day. This shop is a gathering place for a scruffy bunch of bottle diggers and collectors. They come to hang out, and show off their latest finds. These guys know bottles. They know how a bottle was made, in what year, and what its former contents were just by picking it up. And they know about color. This is a topaz with an olive tone. It looks deeper than it's supposed to be. Now, when it's sunny, does it pass light? Oh my God, yeah. It does. Oh, yeah. To the unfamiliar eye, topaz looks a heck of a lot like yellow. For a bottle collector, the entire rainbow could be renamed in bottle colors. Ruby, topaz, olive, sapphire, cobalt, puce, and amber. They see shades and tones in antique glass, the way a wine connoisseur tastes cherry or oak, when everyone else is thinking, tastes like booze to me. So they're like visual candy for my eyes. Uh, (laughs) Right? (laughs) Color is one characteristic that makes a bottle rare. Age is another. And how rare a bottle is determines its price and its value. Certain bottles of a certain hue and age can be worth as much as fifteen, or even $20,000. For the guys at the shop, unearthing something valuable is what makes digging fun. It's like treasure hunting. Both. It's the, it's Both the, hunt, it's the hunt and the find. Yeah. Yeah. And getting something for nothing. Yeah. yeah. The guys at the potluck bottle shop all know who Bram is. He's got a reputation. Graham Hepburn, he's like the king of the diggers. He's about as ball crazy as anyone I know. It is hard to keep up with Bram as he walks through the woods. He's a man on a mission. He's arrived at a large expanse of land with old settlements on it. Now all he has to do is find the trash pile. His eyes flash back and forth across the landscape. Today he feels optimistic about finding valuable bottles. But for Bram, value isn't in the market price. The way the average person values an object is by how much is it worth. I have dug this bottle that the world out there would say is worth $1,000, but I'm not selling it because I dug it and because, you know, I want to have this the rest of my life. Bram spots buckets sticking out of the ground and shards of pottery on the forest floor. Cues that this is where people were dumping their trash back before municipal garbage collection. He has found a bottle dump. He may have found a little spot here. Using his rake, he exposes earth, 
He's hoping for the sweet clink of metal on glass. Oh, that's just machine made, but... Bram is looking for handmade bottles at least 100 years old, from before bottles were made by machine. Bram finds value in the history of the bottle. Now, these were blown on the end of a pipe with a guy's, you know, guy's breath formed that. He used a little hand tool and tooled that all by hand. An old bottle, a good find, connects him to the craftsmen that made the bottles and also to the people that used them in their everyday lives. Last touched by some guy in Farmer Gene, probably, who was feeling sick and was drinking out of this elixir bottle 120, 130, 140 years ago. Um, you know, he picked up this product on his horse and buggy, and then when he was done, he threw it in a barrel beside the house, and then he carted it down the trail and dumped it over the stone wall where, where it sat and rotted. And, you know, and then I come looking for it, kind of. And then, you know, I pick it up, and it's, I'm the next person to pick it up. I'm, like, directly now connected to that person. And then it's pretty neat. As he digs, he looks for a rare color to stand out in the dirt. Anticipation of the moment he sees it is what keeps Bram digging. I've got a friend of mine who told me once he gets to that point that he's worked towards where he's got this bottle that he'll stop, he'll sit and smoke a cigarette and just make that make that moment last as long as it can and, and try to think, you know, what if it's whole, what if it's broken, what if it's cracked, um, you know, and then get back to it and then slowly pull it, pull it out. You just took a Polaroid picture in your brain that you're going to, you know, that you can relive a million times because you... You're so focused, and, and you uh, can remember every detail of, of digging that. Bram has a room at home filled with all the really special bottles that he's found. There are close to 100 of them, and looking at each one brings him back to the moment of discovery. I look around, and usually I'm near a stream, and I'll go down and I'll wash it in the stream and you know, hold it up to the sun, and you're just having this magical moment. I mean, that's a, that's a, pretty, a pretty cool experience. No big finds yet today, but Bram Hepburn is still digging. Probably going to be like this for a while. I'm Emily Sapienza. We all have that one teacher who really inspired us, and we knew truly cared about our aspirations and the direction we were heading. It was Miss Bran in the eighth grade for me. This next piece is exactly that type of story. Tina Mullen takes us to Sumner Memorial High School in Sullivan, Maine, to meet Max, and documents his journey to understand his own strengths and the necessary role played by his teachers and school administrators along the way. Tina called this segment Problem Child. Oh yeah, I remember. I was sitting in the toilet on the toilet. Not even like doing nothing, just playing on my phone and like watching like the Punisher on Netflix or something. And Mr. Doobie comes in and goes, Max, is that you? And I go, Nope! And I act like I try to like hide my voice because my very distinctive voice, and he walks out. I should have, in hindsight, obviously, if I didn't want to get caught, 
I should have went to the other bathroom, but I stayed in that bathroom and kept watching The Punisher. And he come back in and he goes, Max, I know it's you, get out here. And I go, no, it's not me, bud. And then I just pretty much was like, obviously you caught me, I'm coming in. This is Max. He's 16 years old, a class clown, and a self-reported six foot four. Facts, yo. Max is in the 11th grade at Sumner Memorial High School in Sullivan, Maine. Not to brag, I'm a very popular guy. It's a small school in a small town in the downeast region of the state. Max used to skip school a lot, not just to watch Netflix in the bathroom, but also to work. He's a lobster fisherman, which may not seem like a typical high school job, but in this town, it is. I've pretty much always been, if it makes me money, I'm doing it. Skipping school became a problem for Max. He would skip school to work, get behind, then keep skipping because he didn't believe he could ever catch up. I was just struggling and stressed out, and then I was finally like, well, I'm either going to fail all my classes or go into Pathways and be able to graduate. Pathways is the alternative education program at Sumner. It offers an individualized curriculum, credit recovery, and most importantly for Max, a flexible schedule. He applied, then a week later found himself an in-school suspension for cutting class to watch Netflix in the bathroom. Luckily, the director of Pathways, Ms. Walsh, didn't hold it against him. We had a phone call from um, one of the administrators, and they said, so is Max, is he on your list for looking at um, a pathway position? And I said, yeah. I said, well, he's in in-school suspension. Um, will that disqualify him? And I said, we are on our way. I was just thinking, gee, I hope to God they don't think I'm an idiot because I'm sitting in in-school suspension. I hope they don't think I'm just some little puke who loves to cause trouble. They didn't. They saw the good, and that's why I'm here now. Pathways feels like getting to hang out in your favorite teacher's classroom all day. Your friends are here, the learning is freeform and self-paced, and hats are always allowed. The classroom looks very student-made. The walls are painted teal, there's a disco ball in the corner, and a fish tank left over from an aquaponics project. It's actually not really growing that. It's Swiss chard, lettuce, and spinach. The room is also full of subtle reminders of where we are. Down East Maine is a rural, coastal area without a lot of infrastructure or resources. As Miss Walsh puts it, the school is the resource. There's a washer-dryer in the kitchen, a coat and tie hanging on a door for a student attending a funeral later, and Miss Walsh cooks what she calls second-chance breakfast, every day for students who aren't able to get to school early enough for free breakfast in the morning. Many students that we have also are helping support their families. Um, And there's nothing wrong with that. They just need a way to do it. They just need some help making that happen. For Max, being in Pathways means he doesn't have to skip school when he needs to work. He works out a schedule with Miss Walsh and takes the days he needs. Lobster season isn't in full swing yet, so he's here most days. Questionable. Catfish is deader than a doornail on Christmas. Oh, probably. Yeah, he's oh. dead. Well, joys of having aquaponics, they sometimes die. Yeah, I didn't know that. What caused him to die him. is my question, though. Did he overfeed? Underfeed, maybe? No, because he too didn't much eat out. a lot. 
Just before lunch, Miss Walsh pulls Max and his friend Braden into an adjoining classroom for a quick lesson on Newton's second law of motion. Let's think about this, Max. You're on a lasher boat. Yep. You're pulling by hand. Everything's broken. That's what you're doing. So in the trap, yep. you have, I'm making this up, 50 pounds of lobsters. Students and Pathways get the same diploma as everyone else. They just do it in a more creative way with project-based learning, dual enrollment college courses, and work credit. If you can't make a connection between what you're teaching them and the purpose of it, then at least for these students, there is no reason to do it. After going from world history, chemistry, algebra, and architecture. Pretty much none of those helped me and then I come here and I get a financial empowerment class, a business class, I have an entrepreneurship class. Max's new coursework doesn't leave out math, science, English, and history. It just reframes it in ways that give school value to his life. The more I talk to him, the less surprising it becomes that just a few months ago he was consistently choosing work over school. I gotta make money before I can go do other stuff so I was like, well... Realistically, if I can't go to school, I'll just go to work. I gotta, I gotta work first. It's just the way it is. Yeah, why do you think that's the way it is? Well, I mean, I gotta help some of my bills being paid, you know what I mean? Like with my mom, I just, I don't have to, but I, I do, if that makes sense. Yeah. Pretty much just gonna help out the family. Max's first lobstering job was working as a stern man on his father's boat when he was 12. And a couple of years later, he had a realization. Uh, I was about 14, and it was my sophomore year, and I was just hauling on the boat one day, and I'm looking out at the water, and I just think to myself, I go, this is what I'm going to be doing the rest of my life. I might as well make it worth it, be a captain or something, you know what I mean? Like, I just realized, like, Realistically, we're on the boat right now. What else are we going to be doing in 50 years? Nothing. Just going to be lobster fishermen. So it's pretty much all that it amounts to, really. The way Max talks, so single-minded about his future at such a young age, makes it clear just how few options there are for work in this region. Nothing. You're pretty much a lobster fisherman or broke. Kind of sucks, honestly. I mean, you could be a carpenter or something like that, but... I mean, you make a little bit more, but you don't make as much as lobster fishing. Well, it seems like Max is being pushed into lobster fishing by circumstance, he's still an ambitious kid. He wants to be a captain, own his own boat, be his own boss. And it looks like all of those things are on track to happen. So I asked him, why go for the high school diploma at all? First off, I don't want to be dumber than a sack of rocks. Second off, you need it to have a lobster license. Without that, you can't have it. So, realistically, if I don't have my lobster license, I can't be a captain. I could have been a stern man my whole life, but that by the time I'm 40, I'd have a broken back and wouldn't be able to work. So, realistically, a high school diploma is something needed in a lobsterman, lobster fisherman's life. Max uses the word realistically a lot. It's like this adult costume he puts on when talking about his future. Realistically, I just want my kids, when I have kids and everything, when I die, I want them to have as much money as they could have, and they could, I just want them to be set. At the heart of the Pathways philosophy is treating kids with the respect and responsibility of adults. I asked Miss Walsh if she ever worries about adultifying kids too young. It's already happened before they come here. They've already had adult 
experiences. And believe me, I wish they hadn't. But that's already where they are. So if I don't meet them there, then I'm being disrespectful to them. Being treated like an adult in Miss Walsh's class is what is allowing Max to extend his childhood. He gets to come to school, continue his education, and reorient himself to a classroom experience that fits his needs. I've always had teachers tell me I'm like smartest kid in the class or whatever, and I'm like, I've never really believed it, but now I kind of do, because like, oh, Miss Scaglione, she was like, you're the best reading, uh, you're the best reader and writer I've ever seen in like high school, in my life. And I was like, that's so dumb, there's no way. And then like, I was just sitting in here one day and Miss Walsh looked at me and goes, you are such a good writer, Max. I'm like, no, that's so dumb. She's like, no, really, like you really are. And you know, and it's, I just felt, I've been feeling a lot better because I mean, like, I have 3.0 GPA. That's pretty good. That's the first time in my entire life I've ever had a full on 3.0, no mistakes, nothing. It's just, a, I'm doing good and it's, it's good to know. Miss Walsh likes to say that behavioral issues are just the result of an unmet need. That if a kid would rather hide in the bathroom than go to class, then it's the educator's responsibility to solve for that need. Pathways is just one classroom, and Max is just one high school student. But every time they keep a kid in school who is otherwise deemed failing, they prove their model. That schools should bear the burden of adapting to students, instead of the other way around. This is Tina Mullen, reporting from Sullivan, Maine. Since producing this piece, Tina has continued her good work as a freelance producer and editor with iHeart Podcast Network and Future Projects. Her audio stories have aired on WMPG, Portland's community radio station, and she has helped tell stories about backpacking on America's long trails at The Trek and on Allison Young's podcast, Walking Distance. Essential Salt is a production of the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies at the Maine College of Art and Design in partnership with Maine Public. Essential Salt is produced by Lucy Santerre and me, Lucy Suchak. The role of contributing writer and editor is aptly filled by Isaac Kestenbaum, the director of The Salt. Our Essential Salt theme song is by Q Shop. You can find more music for storytelling at CUE. You can find Essential Salt at mainpublic.org slash salt or wherever you get your podcasts, including YouTube. On our next episode of Essential Salt, we'll dive into island life and what that means to people living and working off of Maine's coast. I wish for, I wish we would secede. That's one thing. We would secede and the taxes would drop enough so we can live, basically. And um, that's one. The second one, I'd probably say hmm, that the Cliff Island School would never, ever be been shut down because there were some, some close calls. And my third wish of all would be, hmm, I wish there was a huge roller coaster that went all the way around the island. That's all. <laughs> but those are stories for another day. I'm Lucy Suchek. Thanks for listening. <laughs>